This morning we're going to be in John chapter 12, starting with verse 12. We're going to go to 33. It's a long chapter, so we're breaking it up into three parts. And the last time we looked at Mary's devotion. This was a unique act of devotion to the Lord, and she bravely did it in front of all these men. She anointed his feet. She anointed him with oil, preparing him for his burial. And today we're going to look at the transition that Christ makes from Bethany to Jerusalem. And what we'll find is that they're all celebrating. The Jewish people are celebrating. Uh, If you look at some secular sources, the Passover could bring millions of the faithful following into Jerusalem. Now, why is this significant? And this was under the radar. Most people didn't understand what Jesus was going to do. But the Passover was a time thousands of years ago in Israel's history where, because of sin, God was judging the land of Egypt. And the 10th plague was the plague of the uh, taking of the firstborn. So what you had to do is, in order to stave off this judgment, what you had to do is take an innocent lamb, an animal, shed its blood, and put it on your areas of your doorframe, and the judgment of God would literally pass over your house. Well, what the significance here is that Jesus is the spotless lamb, that perfect, unblemished, you know, God incarnate coming in human form, shedding of his blood so that our sins could be forgiven as well. And that when God's judgment comes, which it's going to come, uh, we're also passed over. That judgment pass, passes over us. Now, this message this morning, I titled it, is when God's word seems counterintuitive. That word is a big word. It's six syllables. It's a $50 word. But all it means is that when, hey, I think that something's right based on my experience, my age, my education, and God's word says something else. Proverbs 14.12 says that there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is in destruction. And as believers... We're going to read God's word at times, and we're going to say, hmm, I don't get it, Lord. We're going to pray, and certain prayers won't be answered. They actually may go in the other direction. And it's, it is a, we, we have a counterintuition here we don't understand. And when we're in the flesh, we're going to argue with God at times as believers. But God, I believe, re- reveals his will to us, and if we want to be in the spirit, then we'll have a better understanding of what he's trying to do in our lives. So starting with verse 12, it says, The next day a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. This is a a portion of scripture taken from Psalm 118. It continues, then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Again, another scripture in Zechariah 9. So we're looking at John's gospel, but we're also coming back to these older messianic scriptures that the older rabbi said, yes, this is messianic. This will be fulfilled at a later date. So this is wild how God is outside of time. So Psalm 18, 25 through 26, it's only two verses. I'm going to read it. In Psalm 118, it says, Save now. That's what Hosanna means. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. 
Now, there was a, what I would like to call a messianic fever at the time. So if you put yourself in that position, you understand secular history, you understand the Passover, you've read about what Jerusalem looked like during the Passover, and Jesus is coming in, let's not forget that he just, he, he just took a man who was dead four days in a tomb and resurrected him in Bethany, which is right next to Jerusalem. So you put all these things together, and in Matthew 21, it says, in addition to all this, that the people took their garments and branches and put them on the ground and had the, the animal that Jesus was on ride over it. Well, this was indicative of a conquering king. When the people went out to greet a victorious king, they would do this activity. So the religious leaders are pretty hot, and we're going to see that because they knew the significance of what was going on. Even if 2,000 years later, the largely Gentile church misses it. So what are we looking at? Zechariah 9, again, it's another scripture in verse 15. That one comes into play. Now, I'm just going to play with uh, a little bit of the election season. You know, you have all these polls. Everybody's taken a poll of the election. But you just imagine if the Gallup poll was around back then, and they come to the man on the street, and they interview. Everybody's cheering. They're excited. A, you know, the Romans are probably a little nervous because they're outnumbered pretty tremendously. And they're asking people, hey, what do you think of what's going on here? You know, what do you think of Jesus? Well, he's, he's the Messiah, and, you know, this is the Passover, and we're thinking about Moses, and, you know, they're all excited. So if, if Gallup was to take a poll with the man on the street and say, well, how many think that he's going to conquer the Romans? Probably 99.99999% would say, yes, I think that's going to happen. Maybe 0.0001% would say, uh, would even uh, consider the crucifixion. But that's what was going to happen. Now, I'm going to get to this book in a moment, but the crowd wanted deliverance now. Deliver us now from the Romans. Here's the irony. If Jesus would have vanquished the Romans at that time and didn't die on the cross, none of those people could be saved. Right? <laughs> so what if he gave in to their demands? Well, what if he gives in to our demands? What if he answers all our prayers? I submit to you this morning that I am thankful for, for unanswered prayer. And you might say, that's weird, Pastor. You're supposed to be teaching us how to pray better and to hear God's will and to you know, have him move mountains for us. But I've prayed some really dumb prayers over the last 18-some-odd years. I mean, life-changing prayers. I'm glad that God didn't give in to a lot of my prayers. And we can only see it in hindsight. Because at the moment, you're begging, you're pleading, you're asking him. And weeks and months and years go by and you don't see it. And then something else happens. You look back, you say, oh, Lord, now it makes sense. So I'm thankful for unanswered prayer. But the first point of counterintuition is, well, what's so great about the triumphal entry? What's so great about God's plan? You know, what's so great about what's going on here with the cross? Knowing the macabre reality of what the Messiah would suffer. I submit to you this morning that they were being saved, but in their minds it was under the radar. And I would ask you this morning, brothers and sisters, what is it that you're struggling with that the Lord may be doing that you're not picking up right away? See, that's where we need to learn to trust him more. And we covered this in 2 Samuel that we, uh, on Wednesday night, learning to trust God more, learning to Accept, you know, you pray your heart out, you ask, you petition, but just accepting what comes down from him because he knows better. Now, this book is called The Search for Messiah. I just want to kind of blow you away a little bit with 
this book, and uh, we can get it for you. It's from a, written by a Jewish doctor, Mark Eastman, written really to Jewish audiences to convince them that Jesus actually was the Messiah. Some of you are going to listen to this and you're going to go, wow, that went right over my head. Send me an email, talk to me after service. It's deep, okay? But he uses several scriptures. He uses the encyclopedia. He uses uh, meteorology to prove his point. In the book of Daniel, chapter 9, Daniel is petitioning the Lord. He's praying to the Lord. He's petitioning the Lord. And God sends him an angel and explains to him what was going to happen. And he, you know, the Jerusalem was in ruins. The temple was destroyed by the Romans. The people were taken and deported to Babylon. And Daniel's maybe a little bit depressed at this point in time. So the angel comes and says, hey, Daniel, don't worry. Jerusalem's going to be rebuilt. The Messiah is going to come. He, he gives him encouragement. And he tells him the exact day. Now, remember, this was written several centuries before Jesus came down and took the form of a man. But he tells Daniel the exact day that the Messiah would come. This is starting on page 104. He says basically that there are 69 Shavuah in the Hebrew, and Shavuah just means a seven, but our decade also means a 10, but we understand it as a 10 period of years. He says 69 Shavuah are determined for Messiah the Prince to come. Now, if you take 69 and multiply it by seven, you get 483 years. Another interesting point is that a lot of the older ancient calendars were based on a 360-day year. Ours are 364 and a quarter. You've got the leap year and all that. Uh, there's a, a lot of speculation about the way the Earth made its trajectory around the sun, and it's really not a circle. It's more of a, an ellipsis. It's more of an oval-shaped kind of situation. But that a meteor strike or something happened that caused the Earth now to take a little bit longer to get around the sun. You know, cosmic collisions and all that kind of stuff. But that's, that's a lot of fun. Uh, so let me, let me get this here. Uh, Sir Robert Anderson, in his book, The Coming Prince, really made this exact calculation. And what he found was if you take the calendar and you multiply it by the 483 years, you get 173,880 days. Now, at the time Daniel's praying, Jerusalem was, was still in ruins. But Daniel says, and the angel tells Daniel, from the command to rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, the king, it'll be this many years. Now, we go to Nehemiah, which is a different book in the Old Testament. Nehemiah is before the king. Artaxerxes Longimanus, you can find this in your encyclopedia. And he's depressed because of what's going on in his home country. But the king loves him so much, he's such a great cupbearer, that he gives a command, this is all history, to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. Now here's where it starts to make sense. So you can take that date and you can go into history and find out that uh, Artaxerxes, the decree of Artaxerxes was the first day of the Hebrew month Nisan, 445 B.C. Okay? Then you move forward, you add the 173,880 days, and what do you get? And this is where he leaves it, after all that stuff. What happened on April 6th, 32 CE? According to Anderson's calculations, a humble carpenter rode into the east gate of Jerusalem on a donkey while the crowds cried, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This man's name was Jesus of Nazareth, and this was the first day that he allowed his followers to proclaim him as their Messiah because he had previously told them that his day had not come. I know there's a lot there. Send me an email. We'll talk about it. It's heavy, but it's, it's amazing. 
So now we understand why this portion of scripture is so darn powerful. Verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him, because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees, or the religious leaders, therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is amazing that John is writing in retrospect. In other words, that's pretty humble of the disciple John. He's writing history, and he's saying, you know, we didn't really get it at first. But after everything came to to be in his glorification, we put all the pieces together and we said, oh, now that makes sense. So that's what's going on here. And I say this for new believers. When I first came to the Lord, honestly, I didn't know anything. I would call my friends. They probably saw my number on the caller ID at 11 o'clock at night. They just didn't pick up the phone after a while. What does this parable mean? What does this mean? What does that mean? Hang in there. Hang in there. Because, listen, you, when you, whatever, anybody take parachuting or jumping out of a plane? I mean, you don't just get in a plane and then jump out of it. You've got to be trained on the parachute and the ripcord and what altitude and all that kind of jazz. So anything that you enjoy in life, now this is, this is eternal. You're not going to pick it up overnight. It's going to be a process. And even the disciples were humble enough to write, hey, it, we didn't get it right away, but eventually, boy, it started to click. And I can imagine the joy with which he wrote. Uh, Verse 19, the religious leaders were conspiring to kill Jesus, and then they conspired to kill Lazarus because they had to get rid of the evidence. And the second point of counterintuition from their vantage point was, God didn't do it the way we wanted. And have we ever said that? You know, I expect this. You know, I really think I'm on the right road. And then we find out later, ah, wow, I'm glad that didn't get too messy. God really covered that one. But Jesus wasn't from the proper aristocratic family. Jesus didn't go to the proper rabbinical schools. Jesus didn't follow their tradition, and he had no plans on throwing off the Roman yoke. So what they were doing was eventually fighting against God. And that's a place that none of us want to be. How do I make sure that I'm not on the wrong side of God's plan? We need to go back to the word. Anything we think that we heard or God showed us, we have to test it with scripture. Remember, John says, they remembered the things written about him. Even the two disciples on the Emmaus Road in Luke's gospel after Christ's resurrection, you know, Jesus was, was veiled to them. They, didn't, they looked at him as just an, a regular person. And they were depressed that Jesus didn't do what they had expected. And he's talking to them, he goes, shouldn't the, the Messiah have suffered these things? And he started going back to the Psalms in the Old Testament, and, they, and then their eyes were open. The light bulb went off, they got it. The problem with the Pharisees, though, is here's the danger. They were so entrenched in their belief system, it became a religious duty. They became self-righteous. They sat back and they said, well, we have all the answers, and everybody has to come to us and listen to us. And that's a problem where pride can cause a problem in our hearts if we allow it to. You know, the world is unattractive to Christian hypocrisy. But what they're also unattracted to is Christian self-righteousness. 
And the self-righteous person will listen to this and go home and look at the mirror and say, well, I don't agree with Pastor Joe. I'm just great. You know what I'm saying? I've just arrived. I'm just being honest, just being frank. And that's where these guys were. And they knew that if they put their weight behind the Lord Jesus, that it would have meant a loss of an earthly position, and they weren't prepared to give that up. So, there's another incident that I would like you to turn to while I'm explaining it. Matthew 21, starting with verse 12. So Jesus enters Jerusalem. He ends up going to the temple area, as he often did, to teach. He did this kind of event in the beginning of his ministry, and he did it just before the end. And this really solidified the, uh, the who's who's, the religious leader's hatred of him. Starting in verse 12, Matthew 21. It says, Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all of those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Another scripture in Mark's gospel goes a little further and says that Jesus would not allow anyone to carry their wares through the temple. Jesus spoke with authority. He acted with authority. I don't think he, you know, he kind of got into a fighting stance and duped it out with them. But he was very adamant about, this is God's house. What are you guys turning God's house into? You guys get to get out. And then when he chased them out, he wouldn't let other people in. So uh, there was a little bit of an authority issue there. Now, some may read this and say, you know, that doesn't fit with what I've heard. It doesn't fit with what I've seen on the History Channel. It doesn't fit with what I've seen on the media about Jesus. You know, my Jesus plucks daisies, drives a VW van, and wouldn't swat a mosquito if it bit him. <laughs> so the third point of counterintuition is, it's, it's, it's the one-sided Jesus. It's not the Jesus I expected. And I'm trying to have a hard time here rectifying my feelings and what I've learned with what I'm looking at in the Scripture. You know, we were talking about uh, at the uh, Three Strands last night with the married couples, how husbands and wives, you know, in all relationships, we get mad at each other, we, we have arguments. And, and I said, you know, when God gets angry, he should be angry because he's God. We're made in his image, but because of sin, we're marred and we're a face. So our, our feelings are not always right. If I get angry, I'm still a sinner. Maybe I'm angry because I feel someone's trying to take something from me and it's a selfish motive. But when God gets angry and God loves, and he can have these competing emotions at the same time. So Jesus can love, but he can also show authority and show boundaries. Some will look at this and say, well, I still like the Jesus that I want to believe in. And that's what, what we do there is we look for a God in our own image. Instead of God making us in his image, what we say is, well, I want to follow this type of God. And we create our own God and say, well, this is the God I follow. What if everybody did that? Well, what about the truth? Isn't that important? As a new believer, sometimes we have to unlearn some of the things that we've learned as we go through the scripture. Now, there's a book written by two doctors, uh, Dr. Cloud and Dr. I believe Townsend, called Boundaries. Jesus showed these people boundaries. And when we have boundaries in our lives, we also show love through that. It's important to understand. Unfortunately, today, you know, I want that God in my image. 
And some, even in the church, in good Bible-believing churches, the attitude is, I don't want to sacrifice, I don't want trials, and I don't want patience. I don't have time for those things, I'm very busy. And some Christians take the path of least resistance, like water and electricity. And that's not what we're called to do. You know, I read a book uh, written by a minister. Uh, he was for you know, 10, 20 years or so. And the book was called The I Hate Church Book. And I'm like, I was curious about that. So I checked it out. I thought, well, it's probably going to be some bashing of the leadership or whatever. But basically what he says is a lot of Christians, um, you know, in today's society, they get offended. They get a little bit offended by another Christian. They leave. They get offended by somebody else. And you got this constant shifting, this roving congregation, because back in the time of Christ and the time of the Apostle Paul, your next church was 75 miles away by foot. (laughs) So guess what? You had to work it out in the church that you were at. But today, we don't want the trials, we don't want the aggravation, we don't want to, to deal with the situations, and we just, we just beat feet. And, and that's not what God has called us to do. Verse 20 in John's Gospel. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew... And in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. Jesus was attractive, not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. Now check this out. The Gentiles had their own court, but they were like second-class citizens. Their court in the temple was the outer court, and they were not allowed to pass into the court of the Jews, the court of Israel. But you know what? That court wasn't going to stop them from worshiping God. And it's quite possible that these Greeks saw Jesus, because it was an open area, and I'm just speculating, as he cleansed the temple and, and drove out the hypocrisy, maybe the Greeks looked back and said, wow, it's interesting. That young rabbi is coming in, you know, he's done miracles, and, and he doesn't want the hypocrisy there anymore. That's impressive. And my question is, what is our impression to the outside world? Are we willing to police our own, so to speak? Are we willing to try to root out hypocrisy? Or do we just want to maintain the status quo? Do we want to be attractive to those outside of the faith? So, so here's a situation where nothing was going to stop these Greeks from worshiping the monotheistic God. And I guess my question to you this morning is, how bad do you want it? Are you a brand new believer? Are you somebody who's considering you know, really uh, considering in your heart walking with the Lord, considering, you know, having him be first in your life. The Greeks wouldn't let this, the court and being looked at as second-class citizens stop them from worshiping God. Do we give up too easily as believers? When the going gets go- tough, do we get going, right? Or do we, do we hang in there and do we maintain that? Do we allow people to throw us off from believing in God? That's an interesting concept. Well, I'm done with God and reading the Bible because I got burned at my last church. That's a poor attitude, you know? I, I look at the gumption of those back then who, who gave everything they had to just worship the Lord. Verse 23. But Jesus answered them and said, Hey, I got this great plan. Look at all the people we have. Check it out. We're going to give you a calculator when you come to the church. No, he didn't say that. He said... 
The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Boy, he was intense, wasn't he? Imagine walking with him. This might have been an emotional roller coaster for the disciples. I mean, hey, Lord, look at our popularity. Even the Greeks like us now. And don't mess it up, Lord, in chapter 7 and 9 and 10, you know, 6. Lord, you, we had a big following, and then you had to go preaching that hard stuff, and they all left. Look, these Greeks really like us. We need to put out more folding chairs. We need to increase our services, Lord. The fourth point of counterintuition is when sometimes the Lord doesn't make sense in how we bring people to the faith. Sometimes in the church, we look at what the world is doing, and we want to emulate that. And I've seen churches do this, and it's, it's, I don't know, it's kind of sad. They'll bring in these secular companies, and they'll come in and say, tell us how we can grow this place. Tell us how we can get more money. That's sad. But this is the way the Lord said it would go down. Okay? People say, you know, look, Lord, and he says, whatever you're thinking, no, the cross. Let me bring the Greeks to the cross. 1 Corinthians 18, two verses. Jesus is always, throughout the Gospels, from the beginning, speaking about the cross and his suffering and what he had to do to redeem mankind. 1 Corinthians 1, 18. It says, For the message of the cross is foolishness, stupidity, rubbish, to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And 23, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, a scandal on in the Greek, where we get the word scandal from. I don't get it. How could our Messiah be hanging on a tree? The Bible says in the Old Testament that anyone who is cursed is hung on a tree. Exactly. He was cursed so we wouldn't have to be. So it's a stumbling block, a stumbling block, but to the Greeks, foolishness, because the Greeks were, you know, hey, we have great philosophers. What's this cross nonsense? What are you guys talking about? Okay, so this is what, what's going on here. I just want to kind of tell you a, a quick joke, which I think embodies this, this concept of the world's looking at the cross. You know, you go to any of these media elites and you start talking about Jesus and the cross and this is the way to salvation and they look at you like you're weird. You're one of those fringe groups, right? So you got these four guys on a plane. You got the pilot, you got a preacher, you've got a hiker, and you've got a professor. And there's only, for whatever reason, three parachutes. So the plane, the engine's cut out, and the plane's starting to sink like a stone. So the pilot goes to the back and he says, number one, I'm the pilot. Number two, I own this plane. So guess what? I'm getting the first parachute. The three of you can fight for the other two. So the professor puts puts it on, and he says to the other two, listen, no offense, but I'm a professor. I'm highly intelligent. I'm working on a physics paper. Uh, you know, I, people need me. You know, I'm talking about cold fusion and, and the way we can achieve energy without coal and oil. So listen, this is what, this is what I got to do. I need the uh, parachute, and he jumps out. So now you got the pastor and the hiker, and there's only one parachute left. So the pastor goes to the hiker. He goes, well, you know, I didn't expect to die like this, but I do preach on self-sacrifice. I do preach on being other-centered, so I'm going to give you the last parachute. And the hiker goes, there's two parachutes here. And the uh, preacher goes, well, how could that be possible? He goes, well, the professor put on my backpack and jumped out the plane. (laughs) 
<laughs> okay. Verse 23. Jesus said that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Man says, yeah, via the crowds. God says, yeah, via the cross. Remember that. Men and women, bigger, better, you know, exciting pyrotechnics, and God always says the cross. Keep that in mind. A grain of wheat. In other words, remember, Jesus took the form of a man. He had to sleep his body, because he took a human body. It needed to sleep. It needed to eat. It was weary at times. And he wasn't omnipresent. He gave that up when he took the form of a man. So, how could Jesus save mankind? Well, certainly not in that body. Not at that time. He had to die for the sins of the world and then be glorified, be resurrected, ascend, and he can do far more for us now uh, and since the cross and the resurrection than he could have done just walking around for another 20, 30 years healing people. Now remember, a grain of wheat, uh, you know, you had your crops and you had your you know, grains at the ed- en- end of the, the crops and uh, maybe through wind or constant battering back and forth. If the grain stays where it is, it's just a dry seed. It's not until that thing is separated from the crop, hits the ground, is covered with earth, you know, has, has uh, water introduced to it that it starts to germinate. And what can that seed do? You'd be surprised what one grain of wheat can do to a crop if it's nurtured and taken care of. I mean, it's just, it's just limitless. But if it remains on that plant, even though the plant's alive and that grain of wheat doesn't die, it can't do anything. So Jesus, of course, had to give of himself. He had to die for our sake. And we come in here as well. Verse 24, he says, unless a grain of wheat dies, it remains alone. Now, if I go into my Greek lexicon, the word alone is manas. Now, if we look at some of the synonyms in the semantic range of the word manas, what we find is, number one, manas can mean single. It remains alone. It can remain single or self-oriented or just self-focused. Or manas can mean mere. Mere means insignificant. And I submit to you, we live in a culture, in a world where, especially in the United States, where we're in groups, and hopefully this isn't in the church, but the world is in groups, but it's a group of individuals. And now we've become so self-focused with our, uh, our electronics, we could actually walk past people on the street, be right next to them, and be so engrossed in our iPhones and our texting and tweeting and all that other kind of stuff that we're just a bunch of individuals. And we remain insignificant. I was really blessed to hear a story of a mother whose son went into the military. And he went through basic training. And after basic training, he contacts his mother and he goes, you know what, I never realized how selfish I was. He goes, I had to learn to eat with these people, to sleep with these people, to train with these people, to give my life to these people if necessary, the team. That's what you're taught in the military. So he, it's amazing, this epiphany that this young man had, uh, willingly giving to his mother about looking back on his selfishness. And I just would ask you, do you want to remain alone and insignificant? Or do you want to be part of a bigger plan? Destiny, purpose, right? And that's what we're all looking for in life. What's my purpose? What's my destiny? Sometimes people retire and they, they've done this job for 20 and 30 years and it's, it's actually stressful. They don't know what to do with themselves. What's the next step in my life? Well, I'll tell you this, that when you're working in the fields with the Lord and he's putting you to work, there's no better feeling. 
It's intimidating at first. What are they going to make me do? You know, what's the commitment level? It's just between you and the Lord. That's your decision. Verse 25. He says, He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. So it gets worse. It's not just Jesus now who's going to die. He wants us to die for our, uh, He wants us to die to ourselves as well. And that's the only way he can use us. And the question is, do you want to be something greater? Do you want to fulfill God's purpose in your life? It may come with some sacrificing. It may come with some suffering. But I will tell you, it's, it's certainly worth it. Matthew 10, 38 and 39, just two more verses parallel to this. Jesus says, And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, if you're you know, somebody who, who's never seen the Bible before, may say, is he talking about mass suicide? Absolutely not. These are metaphors. Die to ourselves. Do we really need to be taught to love ourselves more? I tell you what, I don't. We naturally learn from children to love ourselves. That's why babies scream and cry. They want stuff. Diapers dirty, hungry, <laughs> toy, right? So, and when we get older, 20, 30 years, 40 years later, sometimes we don't say exactly that, but we can have the same attitude. Dying to ourselves. The fifth point that's counterintuitive. Well, I want to stay the way I am. You know, Lord, uh, I'm really good at what I do. I've taken public speaking classes. I have all these years of experience. I have wisdom I want to pour into others. I have education. You know, I'm, I'm good with the way I am. I want the Lord to use me just the way I am. See, but the Lord looks at us and he goes, lump of clay, jagged, not real pretty, no hole in the top, no opening that I can pour into. But he says, I can do something with this lump of clay, but we've got to allow the Lord to do it. We've got to die to ourselves. You know? So he may pull some parts off. He may put us on the spinning wheel. He may put his hand in, take a bunch of junk out, and make a hole so that we can be a vessel that he can use. Right? We're just a, a, a raggedy lump of clay. But we look at ourselves as I'm self-made. You know? I, I'm ha- you know, some of us, 40, 50, 60 years old, we say, you know, I'm finally happy with myself. I finally figured out. Now God wants to change that. But it's true. He has to. He has to. 27. He says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, An angel has spoken to him. And Jesus said, This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Different voices or different responses to the voice of God. Some thought it thundered. Some thought, wow, it's the voice of an angel. Some thought, wow, a jet must have passed by and it was a sonic boom. No, you didn't have those back then. But others heard it for what it was. And Jesus said, it didn't come because of me. How many times did the Father speak from heaven to the Son? And Jesus said, I thank you that you've heard me. 
we're, we're in close contact, you always listen to me, but you know, the voice came for the people around for their sake to see this in real time. However, even though the voice came, there are some that didn't recognize it for what it was, an angel thundering. And I submit to you this, that when we listen for God to speak to us, if we're not in the word and we're not in prayer and we're not asking him to make us open to him changing us for the better, we're going to hear thunder. We're going to hear an angel. We're going to hear a sonic boom. But we're not going to hear his voice. Now, am I promising you that one day you're going to be laying in bed praying and the, the, you know, the sheetrock's going to open up and the Lord's going to be there? He doesn't really do things like that anymore. The Bible's clear in Hebrews that he speaks to us in these days through his son Jesus. But I will tell you that if you are, you know, if you do, if you if your ears are trained on his voice, you will hear what he has to say to you. And believe me, I've lived in the flesh and I've lived in the spirit. And the spirit is much more rewarding because I know that we're in sync together. And that's available to everybody here. I don't care how young you are or how much experience you have. That's available to all of us today. Question is, are we listening? Verse 27, he says, What shall I say? Save me from this hour. But this is the purpose that I came into the world. Now let's go back to our friends, the pollsters. So let's use Pew Research now. Man on the street, Christian on the street. Are you a Christian? Yes. Let me ask you a few questions. Why did Jesus come? Survey said, you know, you, you ask the person, did he come to teach? Or a lot of people will say that, well, he came to teach. Answer, goose egg. You know, that's not why he came. Well, certainly he came to do miracles because he cares for us. Is that the primary purpose? purpose that the Lord came? The answer, no. Well, I know, I know. He's always talking about the poor. He loved the poor. He fed the poor. Well, Jesus came because of the poor. The answer is still no. Those are really neat things that he did, and it was really a blessing to those at that time period to believe in him. However, the primary reason that Christ came is because of you. Now, I, I we, we talk a lot about not being self-centered. Well, here's the time that you can take out your mirror and look at, in the mirror and say, oh, he came for you. He did. He came for you as an individual. He came for me because he so loved us. He so loved the world that he didn't come to do miracles. He so loved the world that he didn't come to feed the poor. He so loved the world that he wanted to give us eternal life if we would have it. He put it out first. He put his hand out first. He opened his arms in a hug first. It's our decision whether we're going to reciprocate or not. That's available to everyone in this room. No matter what your situation, no matter what you did, he came for you. Imagine if Jesus was running uh, in the election. Well, so, so Lord, tell us about yourself. Well, I came to save the 100%. You know? <laughs> not the 99 and the 1, not the 47 and the 53, whatever the breakdown is. Jesus said... I came to save the 100%. John 3.16. Last few verses for this morning. 31. Now this is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying what death he would die. We're going to go into more detail uh, next Sunday, but a lot of us can read the Bible, read the whole Bible and say, oh, cross makes incredible sense. But back then, 
Remember, Revelation was at, at a bare minimum at the time. Uh, for Revelation, they needed to go back into the Old Testament, and they needed to watch Jesus. But there were some things that were still counterintuitive. They didn't sit right. And one of the things was the cross. How could we have so much popularity, and you keep talking about going to the cross? You keep talking about us betraying you. You keep talking about none of us are going to be there. And, Jesus, and Peter's like, that's ridiculous. I'll be there to the end. And, and of course, he wasn't. Let me ask you this morning, what is bothering you this morning? What is it that your finite mind is trying to wrap itself around and you're trying to understand what the infinite God is trying to tell you? You might think your problem is too big. You might think, I've had the problem for too long. You might look and see a situation happening right in front of you and you're saying, you know what, I just, I'm at a loss this morning. I can't get it. I don't know your situation. You do, you do though. Maybe intuition is telling you it just doesn't make sense. Give up. Walk away. Leave him. It's not working. I prayed and and he didn't answer. It's amazing how much effort we'll put into things of the world, but we'll say, well, I prayed once and God didn't. I heard that not too long ago. I prayed once and God didn't answer my prayer, so I'm done with him. Would you give up that quickly on your children, your spouses, your parents? I don't think so. Intuition told the the disciples and the religious leaders the exact same things. What do the disciples and the religious leaders have in common? Very little. But I'll tell you what they did have in common. They didn't understand the cross. But God is bigger than our finite understanding. Think about that for a moment. Maybe it's as simple as God's trying to do something inside of you. Maybe God is not going to remove the situation, but he's going to say, take my hand. We're going to go through this together. You're like, but I don't want to. It's scary. But I'm going to be right with you. I'm going to be right next to you. Trust me on this one. You know, some things may have to change about the way we think and about the way we live. I was talking to a a young person in college who is interested in the things of the Lord. And I have so many of these conversations and she said, you know, I so love my friends and, and I see what they're into and my heart breaks and I get so worried. And I said, what you have to understand is if you don't get well yourself, you have nothing to offer to the people around you except laying in bed, staring at the ceiling, fear, anxiety, worry. That's all you have to give them. It's when we're filled. So here's the options. You want to help those around you? Here's the options. Do it in your own strength. Good luck. I've tried that. Sometimes it works for a little while, but really it's not a long-term solution. That's the one way. The other way is Jesus says, you know, I am the bread of life. I am the one who offers living water. So the one who believes in me out of his heart will, will gush torrents of living water indicative of the Holy Spirit. You know what Jesus says? Well, not only do I want to give you the Holy Spirit, but I want to give everybody around you the Holy Spirit too. I have so much Holy Spirit that it's going to be flowing over. And there'll be plenty. You're going to be this this source. Why? Because you emulate me. Do we do this every day? Of course not. So here's the point. Here's the rub. That we learn to trust God more. That when we see something that we believe is counterintuitive, that we say, you know what, Lord, fill me more with your Holy Spirit. Give me your understanding. Give me the eyes to see the way you see so I can affect everyone else around me. Let's pray. 
Father in heaven, Lord, we just thank you for your word as always. What a blessing. Uh, Jesus, you know, <laughs> I just taught the uh, children's ministry the devotion this morning in Matthew 11, and I was in this like two years ago, and I thought, you know, God gave me something this morning that I didn't have two years ago. Uh, this is the living word. That's why we call it the living word, because we can study this book for 70, 80 years, and in that 80th year, still find something that we didn't see in the beginning, because you're, you're, it is a fountain of living water.